I should settle down quick. Maybe it took me forever to get up front here. I don't know. Well, awesome. We're going to continue our, our study in the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 3, looking at verses 14 through 22. If you need a Bible, steward is up with Bible in hand. Just raise your hand, and I'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 22 this morning. As you're turning there, if you're visiting us for the first time, or if you haven't been following us as we've been doing the special series of the seven letters to the seven churches, just a brief history. In around 95 AD, the Apostle John, after they tried to boil him, hold on a minute, turn on the air and we lose the papers. I thought about that, but then when we get to the last song, then I'm going, okay, well, Sean can figure it out, right? Put them all backwards and upside down. Okay, it's time for a Bible study, all right? Um, In around 95 AD, Apostle John, they they tried to boil him in, in oil. He wouldn't boil, and so they banished him to the island of Patmos. There on the island of Patmos, the Lord Jesus came to him and uh basically revealed to him the revelation about himself, about the end times, the book of Revelation. And it was told to him to uh, write down, in fact, let me read to you what Revelation 1, 11 and 12 says. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in the book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so uh, Jesus then began really, you know, reciting to John what he should write down. In chapters 2 and chapters 3, we have Jesus' letters to the seven churches. And, uh, and we've been going on this series, and we now come to the final church, the church of Laodicea. So now let's look and see what the Lord Jesus has to say to her. Revelation 3, 14-22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and that anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of my study this morning is Heating Up a Lukewarm Church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together, Lord, to be in your word. Lord, we know, as your word says here, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we are here this morning listening to what you have to say to us this morning. So we pray that we would be attentive, even with this time change, Lord. I know many of us are feeling it right about now, Lord. We pray that you would just bless our time together, that we would be attentive, that you'd speak to our hearts Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray for them especially, that they would come to know you as your Lord and as their Savior. 
So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now remember, every one of these churches that we are looking at, be it Ephesus or Smyrna or, or Laodicea, Thyatira, they were actual cities, uh, actual churches in actual cities. This was the church in Laodicea. Now what's interesting about this city is that it had a flourishing clothing industry. There was a particular breed of black sheep that was raised around this area, and so they made these special clothes out of this glossy black wool. And so it was known for their clothing, kind of like, you know, Milan, Milan, Italy, Italy, you know, they have the designer clothes there. It all comes out of there. You know, that was was what Laodicea was like. But it's also known for its medical practices, especially in ISAV uh, that was exported all throughout the entire Greco-Roman world. So they had the medical facility. They also had the, the great clothing industry going on, but they also had a great financial institution there as well. So it was like a combination of, you know, Bank of America, Dillard's, and, and uh, the Mayo Clinic, you know, all wrapped up into to one uh, city. It was a very prosperous city. Now, in the midst of the city was a very prosperous church. But Jesus was not happy with what he saw, and he said, uh, you are lukewarm, and I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Some churches made the Lord weep. Other churches made him angry. The Laodicean church made him sick. I mean, that's pretty shocking if you think about it. I mean, it's one thing to say, you, you break my heart, you know, or, or someone else says, well, I'm angry at you at times. But if someone comes up to you and says, you know, you really make me want to throw up. It's like, what? I mean, imagine taking a girl out for the first time and, and you want to know how you're doing. I said, how am I doing? She's, well, you, actually, you make me want to vomit. I think you might be a little offended, and the only worst thing, of course, is if she actually did throw up all over you, but, but this is what the Lord is saying here. In fact, if you have an old King James Version Bible, Jesus speaking, I will spew you out of my mouth. You know, it just sounds a little more proper, you know, oh, just a little spew. No, the word is vomit, okay? That's what the word is, you know. It's probably what a British person would say if they had to throw up, you know. Oh, I'm feeling a little bit upset right now. I think I have to spew, you know, I'm going to spew straight away. Cheers. And they walk away, and, and you're very proper. Not us Americans. I'm sick. I'm going to throw up. I'm going to barf, okay? Now, I'm not trying to gross us out, okay? I, I, but I am trying to help us to see that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, why does he say that? Because they're neither cold nor hot for him. The, the church of Sardis we looked at, it was a cold, dead church. In contrast to the church of Philadelphia, it was alive, it was hot, it was vital. But here is this church, it's caught somewhere in the middle. It's, it's lukewarm. Now, to me, if it's possible for a set of conditions to exist in a church that makes God sick, then we need to know about them. And so we can avoid them at all costs. Now, I believe every church and every age can take heed to the warnings that Jesus has given in these seven letters. And this one is no exception. So we must examine our hearts and our lives to see where we might apply these warnings that Jesus gives and embrace the encouragements of these messages. You know, it's like coming to Christ for a spiritual checkup, a, a physical. You know, we, we go, you know, we take that physical every year, or in my case, it's got to be every six months. But, but it, it's like that. We're going to come to Jesus for this physical. In fact, Jesus is referred to as a great physician. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I bring it up because Jesus has the right prescription as a great physician for us to be a healthy church. A church that's on fire for Christ, not a lukewarm church. 
So with that reason, I've divided our study into three points. If you're taking notes, number one, we're going to see the physician. Number two, we're going to see the patient. Number three, we're going to see the prescription. Number one, the physician. Look at verse 14. And to the angel, and we looked at that as the messenger or the pastor of the church, of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, remember that each one of these letters, Jesus addresses himself with a title that that particular church needs in their lives. And this one's no different. They needed to hear that Jesus is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, we often use the word amen, I think very casually. We don't really, you know, understand its true meaning. You know, I think we use it kind of like, like the end, you know, and they lived happily ever after, amen, that, that type of thing. But the word in Hebrew actually means so be it or let it be. And the Greek, uh, Jesus often used it in the beginning of the sentence when he would say, verily, verily, I say unto you, or amen and amen. In other words, listen up for sure. Absolutely, this is the truth. So by Jesus calling himself the Amen, he's declaring, what I'm about to say to you is the absolute truth, and it's extremely important that you pay attention. Jesus is called the Amen because when Jesus speaks, it's the absolute truth. But to really make his point further, he says that he's also a faithful and true witness. That means he's going to tell us the whole truth, nothing but the, nothing but the truth, because he is God, not so help him God. And so, uh, in other words, we can be assured that what we're not going to hear uh, uh, are, are just words that make us feel good. We're going to hear what Jesus wants us to hear, what Jesus knows that we need to hear. Isn't that exactly what you would expect to see or hear if you went to a physician, if you go to the doctors? I mean, if we have a terrible disease, we don't want him to say that we're, we're not very sick. If we need an operation, we don't want him to go, oh, you know, just take a couple aspirin, you'll be fine, get over it. You see, by revealing himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, Jesus is declaring that his diagnosis of their condition in their lives is totally reliable. Because no doubt after hearing what he's about to say, they're not going to like it. They're going to kind of deny, oh, no, it can't be true about us. And they would seek to deny it. So Jesus says, before I even get to what I'm telling you, I want you to know my credentials, my authority that I have to tell you these things. I am the amen, I'm faithful, I am true. One more thing he says, and this is important, verse 14, these things says the beginning of the creation of God. Now, there are cults that have taken this and they have said that, uh, they twisted it, they tried to teach it. Well, Jesus, see, he was a created being. He's not really God in the flesh. But what's interesting is that it's saying exactly the opposite. Jesus here is actually correcting the heresy that was apparently in the church of Laodicea as it was in Colossae, that Christ was a created being. So basically he says, I am the beginning. That word beginning in in the Greek is the word arche, which means first. It means chief. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And then we know in John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We know Colossians 1, 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So that as a man, Jesus had a beginning. But as God, He was the beginning. And so understand, He's giving a description of Himself, really to a church that has lost touch, what the reality of who Jesus is. 
and of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to know that I know everything about you. You know, for the most part, when you go to the doctors and you have something wrong with you, the, the, he, he asks you a series of questions to try and diagnose it properly, what's going on in your life. And, well, is it this? Are you still this way? What about this? And, and based off of the deductions and off of the best of their training and schooling, they come up with what's wrong with you. And sometimes it's spot on. And sometimes it's completely off. And said so that's why it's called practicing medicine, because they're still practicing But Jesus is saying here, there is no series of deductions going on here to try and figure out what's wrong with you. I know everything about you. He has an accurate understanding of your spiritual condition. And because of who he is, he can do something about it. And I say amen to that. Man, that's the kind of doctor you want to have. Uh, It's like the story I I read of a, a hospital administrator who was startled to see a patient fleeing down the hallway uh, out of the operating room, his loose gown flapping in the breeze behind him. And he stopped the patient and he said, do you mind telling me why you ran away from the operating room? The patient looked at him with startled eyes and said, it was because of what the nurse said. The administrator said, oh, what did she say? She said, be brave, an apodectomy is quite simple. The administrator said, well, so what? It's quite simple. I would think that that would comfort you. The patient said, the nurse wasn't talking to me. She was talking to the doctor. Get it? To the doctor. It's quite simple. But think about it. How would you like to go into a surgery for a very delicate and dangerous operation, only have the, the doctor come up to you and say, you know, I've never done this operation before in my life, but I'm a nice guy. I'll give it a good shot. It'd freak you out. You'd say, no way. I'm out of here. Why? Because you want the very best doctor possibly to, to do that surgery for you, one who is very capable All that to say, Jesus is the great physician who's not only the best doctor there is, he's the only one capable of dealing with our spiritual condition. In fact, he's a specialist because he's created us. So we have his credentials of our great physician. Number two, we have now the patient. Jesus here now lists the diseases, if you will, that are plaguing this this body of believers. And I might add, this was the only church that Jesus had nothing good to say about it. Look at verse 15. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You know, archaeologists have discovered an interesting fact about the city of Laodicea. The city did not have its own water resource. And so there, there, it was carried in through aqueducts. One aqueduct, aqueduct came from Colossae, where there was these, these huge cold water springs. And the other aqueduct came from Heropolis, where there were natural hot springs. The problem was, by the time the water all came into Laodicea, it didn't matter what source it came from, the result was it was all lukewarm water coming in to the city. So the Lord is using this lukewarm illustration of Laodicea as an analogy for the character of the church. And it's really quite sad, again, that the Lord has absolutely nothing good to say about this church. He starts in verse 15, I know your works, but they're just meaningless gestures. They don't have any spiritual value, much like the cult groups today that that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They may do all sorts of good works, but, but they have no spiritual value. But can you imagine standing before Jesus and he's not a single good thing to say about you? Not only that, but he says, you know what? You make me sick. In verse 16, Jesus makes this startling statement. We read it already. Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
that word vomit actually means a violent reaction. It's so disgusting to Jesus Christ, he wants to, to get you away from him. Now, if you're a parent, if you've had sick children in the past, you, you know, realize that they don't, really don't understand how to handle it when they get sick to their stomach. And I'll never forget, and this is probably when I think Laura was probably five years old and Chris was three. We just had two kids at the time. And, and uh, Lisa, she was sitting on the sofa and she was sick with the flu. And I just put Christopher in his bed and he was probably three. Like I said, and Laura's five. And I'm walking Laura into her bedroom and suddenly, you know, we'll just call it spew. Okay, she spewed all over the floor, all over the side of her bed. And almost at the exact same time, I hear Christopher, Dad, I don't... Oh, no. So I leave Laura there. I look at Chris. I go into the living room. I say, Lisa, you'll never believe. And Lisa's on the couch with the bowl. I'm thinking, at that point, I just wanted out of the house. I wanted to get away from it. I'm going, okay, I'm the only one here. Okay, I'm going to have to come in and deal with this, you know, and, and I, I kind of see, it's kind of what Jesus is doing here, you know, I got to deal with this. But you see, the question is we, that we have to ask ourselves, is my life making God sick to his stomach? Are the things that are, I'm involved with in my life, is it things that are making him sick? I find it interesting that the Lord looks at the apostasy of the church in Thyatira, he became angry. He said, I'm going to come against her. But when he looks at this church of indifference, of lukewarmness, he becomes ill. And he gives us really three reasons why. And if you're taking those notes, we see compromise, self-sufficiency, and self-deception. First, the reason why it makes him ill is because he sees compromise. I mean, think about it. How do you get lukewarm water out of the faucet? Turn a little bit of hot a little bit of the cold, and it comes out. Or get that, if you have a single faucet, you know, just get it right there in the middle, and you get that lukewarm. In the same way, a lukewarmness occurs when we seek to live our life in the middle, which is one foot with the Lord and one foot in the world. Because we have too much of the Lord to be satisfied in the world and too much of the world to be satisfied with the Lord. See, the lukewarm person experiences no conviction. It never really affects their conscience. A lukewarm person doesn't take the Bible seriously, doesn't take Jesus seriously, really or even sin seriously or, or the lost seriously. It means they've lost their passion for the lost. They've lost their passion for the things of the Lord. They've become indifferent and apathetic. In fact, they've reached a place where they were, were, were going through the motions, but they're unmoved by the things of God. You now, maybe they were even indifferent to the cross of Christ. Know the word of God and the condition of the lost people around them. They, they, no, they weren't burning with that passion for Jesus. See, they they they, they, were, they were totally dead and cold. They they were they weren't rather totally dead or cold. They were somewhere in the in the middle. The condition makes Jesus sick. They were compromised. Now again, Jesus' words to the seven churches speak also prophetically. So this is also speaking of it at the last days church, the modern church today. And I think Jesus can look at the church today in many different places and see that people are just going through the motions. There's no burning in their hearts. There's no passion for the Lord. There's no passion for the lost. You know, people today, they're no longer moved by the cross. They read about the crucifixion. You know, they hear about it, yet they sit unmoved. People are unmoved with the plight of the lost. They, they know people are lost, they, and, and they know that lost people are going to go to hell. But, but do they really care? They say, oh, it's terrible. People need to get saved. But, but they don't pray. They don't witness. You know, they don't care. I think the, the average church today is a perfect definition of the word apathy. 
They're not exactly dead because they're praying some, they're preaching some, they're singing all, but they're not exactly on fire either. There's no excitement. There's no passion to whom they serve or what they hear or what they're doing. There's somewhere in that middle road. People come into some of these churches, you know, they sit in there and they go, okay, you know, bless me if you can. Let me hear what you have to say, you know. Listen, how can you hear about Jesus, his love for your soul, his death on the cross for you, all that he's done for you, and remain unmoved, remained unpassionate? How can you know him and never be moved by that relationship? John Stott wrote these words. The Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity, which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. Wow. You know, I've shared this before. The church is not to be a country club operating for the benefit of its members. We're not a performing arts center where one is entertained with these great dramatic performances and heartwarming speeches and wonderful music. Neither is a church to be a political action group or protest movement taking sides and issues in the world political arena. I like what Richard Haverson once said. He was esteemed chaplain of the U.S. Senate from 1981 to 1994. He said this, The more I listen to evangelicals talk, the less I hear about the hope of Christ coming again, and the more I hear about making the USA a Christian nation, a prosperous nation. Sometimes I think if Christ would come back, it would constitute a terrible interruption of their plans. And that was written some 22 years ago. Sounds like it could be written exactly today. That's where they were. The church today is, is quickly drifting away from biblical truth and has turned to whatever man says is truth is truth. It's the age, age of compromise. And it's quickly the church is quickly becoming lukewarm, nauseating in the eyes of the Lord. Once these, these professing Christians would... would you know, would, would never even suggest of killing unborn babies. And now it, it's rationalized. It's condoned. The practicing of homosexual behavior, now it, it was, was, was uh, you know, was put down. Now it's ordained in the ministry, taking place in churches today. Compromise has set in. The second reason, the second problem with the patient is self-sufficiency. Number two, verse 17. It says, because you say I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. So again, this church, they thought they really had it all together. I mean, they thought they were really better than they really were. They had an elevated view of themselves. Look how rich we are. Man, we got it together. We got the building. We got it all. We're, man, we're, we're doing it. Man, we, don't, we don't need anything, you know? Reminds me of a story I've shared before, but it makes a great point. It's a story about a lion that had a similar problem and an elevated view of himself. One day he roared that he was the king of the jungle, but he wanted to make sure all the other animals knew it. So he went first to the bear. And he asked him, who is the king of the jungle? The bear replied, why, you are, of course. The lion roared with approval. He next went to the tiger and asked him, who is the king of the jungle? The tiger replied, why, you are, of course. And the lion roared again with approval. He then went up to the elephant and asked him, who is the king of the jungle? While the elephant proceeded to pick up the lion by his trunk, he twirled the lion around five or six times, threw him up against a tree, then he sat on him. Picked him up again, threw him down against the, the, the ground. Picked him up one more time, threw him into the river. The lion, struggling to gain composure, looks up and says, Look, just because you don't know the answer, you don't have to get mean about it. <laughs> Jesus is the true king. Yet the Laodiceans thought they 
really didn't need them. They had it all together. They were self-sufficient. So, number one, compromise the diagnosis, the problem with the patient. Number two, they were self-sufficient. Number three, they were self-deceived. Self-deception is a problem. Look at verse 17 again, the end of it. He says, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. How could Jesus have such a completely opposite view of them than what they had of themselves? Well, it's because they were measuring themselves by two different standards. Uh, like today, I might say, well, what is the temperature out today? And you would look at a thermometer and you'd say, well, it's going to be 68 degrees. But I might check another thermometer and, and say, no, you're wrong. It's 20. The truth is we can both be right because one thermometer was Fahrenheit and the other was centigrade. 20 and centigrade is 68 Fahrenheit. But if you use two different standards of measurements, you're never going to be able to agree on what the true temperature is. That's what was happening here. They're measuring themselves by two different standards. The Laodiceans, they were measuring by themselves by the standards of the world. By the world standards, they thought, hey, man, we're, we got it all together. It was a pleasant church, a comfortable church, a church approved by the community all around them. Man, they had everything going on them. But Jesus is using the standard of what he intended the church to be like. And he tells them. They said, I'm wonderful. Jesus says, you're wretched. They said, we're marvelous. Jesus said, you're miserable. They said, we're prospering. Jesus says, you're poor. They said, hey, man, we're something to look at. Jesus says, you're blind. They said, we've got designer clothes. Jesus says, you're naked. See, to be lukewarm is to be blind to your own spiritual condition. You're self-deceived. That's why lukewarmness is the most dangerous of all the spiritual sicknesses, because a person doesn't realize that they're sick. They're self-deceived, having just enough religion to inoculate them to the truth. It's been said the best vaccination against the gospel is the gospel heard but not heeded. They are, as G. Campbell Morgan said, an evangelized non-believer. See, the problem with, with the lukewarmness is that it's a self-satisfied condition in which a person thinks they have it all, they know it all. You know, it's like the nurse that my wife had a couple of years back when she was in the hospital. We invited her to church and we said, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about what you need in your life and, and, and God does. And, and she said, well, I don't need to go to church. I know everything there is to know about the Bible. Really? I've been a Christian for some 35 years, 40 years, and I, and I don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. Again, Jesus is saying you're blind. And the word that he used there uh, is, is that for blind is you are deliberately closing your eyes to the truth. You don't want to say it. You don't want to see it. You say you have clothes on, but you have, actually have no clothes on. Even though that, that city was known for its clothing, uh, you know, fashion capital at the time with their beautiful wool, right? Jesus said, you're not even wearing clothes right now. I think of the story of the emperor's, you know, uh, uh, new clothes. You guys familiar with that story? I think it's some of the younger generation isn't. It's a story about an emperor very vain and really into the way he looked. And he went to these tailors and he says, I want to have the finest, finest garment ever created for me to wear among my subjects. So they said, okay, we'll have one for you soon. He came back. Well, he, they didn't have anything uh, to make this garment for him. So, so they lied to him. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is what we got. Look at this material. Only those that are really noble, only those that are really fit to see it can actually see this, you know. In fact, if you can't see this, then you're stupid. The king says, oh, I see it, I see it, you know. And, and all the king's lords said, oh, we see it, we see it too, right, here it is. And so they, they drape over in this non-existent material and they begin to cut and sew and, and make this beautiful robe. And he's so excited, i got to go show my, my, all my kingdom what, what this new clothing I have. So he and his lords, you know, uh, you know, 
they go out and he's really wearing no clothes at all and they're walking and, and, and the people are going, ooh, because they, oh, you know, look at their new clothes. And, and finally some little kid says, to, Mommy, why is the, the king naked? And, and, you know, and they're busted. Oh, man. See, nakedness speaks of, of shame. It speaks of humiliation. And that's this church here. That's the last day's church as well. All of their self-righteousness. Oh, we have the finest clothes. Jesus says you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. It's like, God bless you, have a great week. Yeah, end of story. I'm glad Jesus doesn't stop there, aren't you? I really am. And that brings us to point number three, the prescription. Any good doctor is going to give us what we need, and ours does. Look at verse 18. So he says, I counsel you to buy for me gold we find in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, he's talking physical. I mean, you know, the, the physical starts, but, but he's really speaking spiritually, and the Lord gives four different medications prescribed to this church. He begins by using business language, if you will. You guys are all about buying and selling. I'm going to use your language for a moment. He says, it's like saying to someone, you know what, you have all these things, all these possessions, but you need to be making spiritual investments. And he talks about buying gold uh, from, from refined in the fire. You see, in Bible days, refiners would get the gold. It would come in from the mines, and they would heat it up until it was, you know, liquefied. After stirring it, they would get all the impurities burned out of that, and, and they would know the process was complete when they could look into this pot of liquid gold and see their reflection coming up from the gold. In the same way, Jesus is saying that these people... They were impure. They were carnal. And, and, and lukewarm Jesus' challenge is that the refiner allowed Jesus as the refiner to heat up their lives, to get them back where they need to be. Allowed, you know, him to work the impurities out of their lives so that Jesus could be reflected in and through their lives. See, they had put their faith and their, their reliance on their wealth and sufficiency had ceased to depend on the Lord. They, they had ceased to live by the refined gold of faith in Jesus Christ alone. Okay, why do I need to pray? I'm just going to write a check. I, you know, I got the money. Why seek the Lord for his healing? I'll have to take a couple aspirin. Why do what the Bible says? I'm just going to get a divorce. It's easier. No, Jesus says, allow me to refine your life. Depend on me. Put your faith back in me. That's prescription number one. Number two, also verse 18, Jesus says, Put on white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Again, a city known for their woolen garments, Jesus says you need to be clothed in white garments. You know, white garments speak of the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is saying you no longer need to be clothed with your own self-righteousness, which according to Isaiah we know is as filthy rags in the sight of God, but rather we're to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ himself. A perfect righteousness the type that God accepts. Listen, we're all naked before God anyway. Remember there in the Garden of Eden, there Adam and Eve, they sinned. They sewed fig leaves and made aprons and, and they hid their own nakedness in their own way. I think every one of us uh, knows something about ourselves that we were not anyone else to know. Something about our lives, we, we, I want ever, no one ever know about this. But listen, God knows. He knows. He sees our nakedness. And what does he offer it for us? To clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans thirteen fourteen, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. 
And how many believers today are making all sorts of provisions for the flesh and they're making no provision to go into God's presence, to be into God's word, to close ourselves with the righteousness of God. So put Christ first in our life. He's telling us, get out the word of God and get into the word of God. Be walking in the spirit. That's putting Christ first. Now, this brings us to our third prescription, the medication, if you will. In verse 18, anoint your eyes with eye stab that you may see. Again, they're known for their eye stab, the healing that, that that brings for eye infections. And Jesus is saying, okay, you got an infection in your eyes spiritually. You're not seeing, number one, your own sin. You know, you're not seeing what's going on. We, we need some healing here. So what does the anointing of the eye speak of? I, I believe it speaks of the Holy Spirit. In fact, 1 John 2.20, John says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. This speaks of getting back to uh, that place where you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit tugging on your heart and speaking to your heart, you know, and then you're dependent upon His power. Again, the city that was famous for its eye medicine, Jesus says, you need this kind of medicine only I can give. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, convicting us as we're in God's Word, reflecting back into us while I see where I'm at in God's Word and see where we're at, showing us our true condition. And then to repent, he says. In fact, Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I think of when Jesus healed the blind man there in, in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 30. And, the, and they wanted to know, the, the religious rulers wanted to know how this happened, who did this and all that. And I love his answer. He says, Why this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. See, Jesus is the business of opening our eyes to see our true condition, to show us where we are at and where we need to be. David wrote in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in that way everlasting. And then finally, the fourth medication that really is required for the other three to work properly is at the end of verse 19, Jesus says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. See, the church had grown indifferent to the Lord, but although it made him sick, he wasn't indifferent towards them. Why? Because he loved them. He loved them. Why does the Lord correct us when we're wrong? Why does the Lord confront us when we're in sin? Because he loves us and he doesn't want us to stay in that place. I love a better translation of verse 19. It's a new, uh, the amplified version. As many as I dearly, tenderly love, I tell their faults and convict and convince and reprove and chasten. I discipline and instruct them. Listen, when, when God disciplines you, in other words, when you cross that line as a Christian and you do something that you shouldn't do and you feel that tug of conviction or guilt after you've done a wrong thing and you get caught, in what you're doing. And you have to face the consequences. And it can be tough. I, I want you to know that that happens not because God is against you. Not because he's bringing judgment on you. It's more that he, he, it's because God is for you. Not because he hates you, but actually because God loves you. He's disciplining his kids. That's what he does. Hebrews 12, 6-8 in the New Living Translation we're told, For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? 
If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means you are illegitimate and you're not really his children at all. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I know I have. You, you, you know, if you see someone else's kids acting up and, and their parents do nothing about it. Maybe you're at a restaurant and the kids are screaming and slapping the food and, you know, and, and, you know, he's 13 years old and, and you're going, okay, you know, man, I want to go over there and, and, and I, you know what, you know, and you want to. You want to go over there, but, but that's not what God has called us to. It's not your position to go and discipline that child. You may like to, but if you do, you can be in big trouble. But it is your responsibility to discipline your own child if she or he or she is acting up. That's your role. In fact, if you don't do that, then you're really irresponsible as a parent. So in the same way, when we're, we discipline our children, you know, we don't discipline someone else's child. And the way that works with God is the same way. When we're disciplined by God, it's because we're his child. And he, he loves us. And, and, and really... The most dangerous place to be is, is in a place of getting away with your sin and not really sensing that discipline from the Lord. I mean, if you can go out and do something the Bible says you shouldn't be doing and not feel any guilt or any conviction in your life, that concerns me. If you can go and have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend and have that affair and somehow in your mind rationalize it and say, well, you know, God is okay with it. If you can divorce your spouse without any biblical grounds whatsoever, if you can go out on a weekend or any other night of the week, for that matter, and get drunk and wake up from your hangover, and, oh yeah, isn't it great to be a Christian, and you don't feel any guilt or remorse, then something is seriously wrong with you right now. And that should freak you out just a little bit. But if you find in that moment, you start to cross that line, you go over there and there's a sense of, man, I shouldn't be doing this. Man, uh, man I feel terrible. Or even if you're facing the repercussions of your sin and you think, man, it's more than you can handle. That's a great indication that you are, are God's kid. Because he loves you so much, he's going to tell you the truth. And he's going to want to help you and help us to change. He's going to convict us. And he's going to allow these consequences in our life to get us back into the place where he needs us to be. Where he wants us to be. In that fellowship with him. That's what he's doing with them and that's what he's doing with us. And that's why he says in verse 19, therefore be zealous and repent. A better translation of that verse is, let them repent at once and irrevocably, let them continue always to be fired with zeal. Now why is the emphasis on doing this at once? I have to tell you, because a lukewarm person is, is really far down the road. And if they can hear what the Lord is saying right then and right there, in effect he's saying, man, you need to act right now. Don't put this off another moment. Repent at once. Do it now. Don't wait a week. Don't wait an hour. Don't wait ten minutes. Repent and get back to where you need to be. Get back to being fired up in your life spiritually again. And then finally he says, enter into that relationship with me once again. Not a ritual. Not a religion. It's a relationship. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I heard a story about a pastor who went to visit someone from his church one day. He knocked on the door of their house. There was no answer. But he did hear some noise on the inside and, and he thought, well, they're just ignoring me. So he knocked again and, and still no answer. So, so he thought it would be very clever. So he pulled out his business card and, and wrote down Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Well, four days later, he gets a note in the mail. It was from the person he went to go see. They wrote down a verse also. They wrote down Genesis 3.10, which says, 
I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Here, Jesus is saying, listen, you're not going to get any better by keeping me on the outside of your life. You're not going to get any better. In other words, let me in. I'm the great physician. I'm here for you, for your life to help you. Now, verse 20 here is often quoted to the non-believer. And I've quoted it many times myself. And I think it's entirely appropriate to use for someone who is not yet a believer. Jesus stands at the door of your heart and your life. And if you'll hear his voice and open the door, he will come in. Because becoming a Christian is having Christ come into your life, take residence in you. The Bible says, for as many as received him, he's given them the power to become sons of God in John 1.12. But listen, just because a person is in church doesn't mean Christ is in them. And and again, Jesus is writing this to the church. To the church. So you can really be an evangelized non-believer. You can be a lukewarm person. You can be a person who attends church but doesn't have the Lord living in them. So Jesus is saying, come and dine with me. In other words, let's have this relationship together. Now, I don't think we really understand uh, you know, what he's really saying here, because we've lost the meaning behind it because of our fast food culture that we live in today. You know, especially lunch. You know, it takes all of about 20 to 30 minutes, even shorter, you know, if we're out uh, doing stuff. You know, we get done here, especially with the time change. You guys are going, food. We need food now. Let's go to lunch, you know. And we want to consume mass quantities of food in, in record time. That's not the way it was in the first century. Dinner was the main event. That was the time that you looked forward to all day long. Man, you'd work all day, you know, doing manual labor. You couldn't wait to get home and relax, maybe go over to some friend's house or family's house and have a meal together, just sit around the table. It was a time to reconnect, to to reflect upon the day. Time to hear from one another, to talk to one another. Now, you didn't do that with a stranger. You did it with your family. You did it with, with friends. So Jesus is saying, I don't do fast food. I don't want something quick are temporary. Don't do it, strangers. I want to sit down with you. I heard about a dating service that's called Just Coffee. The idea is instead of going out on a dinner date with someone, instead of, uh, you know, you just meet for coffee instead. So if you don't like them, you can say, okay, I'm done. Done with my coffee. Done with you. I'm out of here. I think that's how some people are with Jesus. Jesus, let's just do do coffee. All right? You know, just coffee. Uh, Jesus says, I don't do coffee. Let's have dinner. I mean, some of the most profound things that Jesus shared, what? They were over meals with his disciples. That's why John would lead up, lean up against Jesus' chest and, and listen to every word that he had to say to him. Jesus is saying, I want this relationship with you. I want this friendship with you. I want you to spend time with me. Behold, I'm standing at the door of your heart and your life. I'm knocking. Would you open the door? Let me come in and dine with you and you with me. That word behold there means to study closely, to look at and understand. So Jesus is saying two things here. Wake up and understand that I'm on the outside of your life, needing to be on the inside. And number two, he's saying the doorknob's on the inside. It's not a doorknob on the outside. See, Jesus isn't going to come in and knock down that door. I mean, he's not going to burst it down. You've got to open the door for him. You've got to invite him into every aspect of your life. And I think at one point, you know, when you give your life to Christ, you do. But then you've got other doors in your life that you keep shut. 
And Jesus is going, hey, let me in that room over there, not that room. You can have this room and that room and this room, but not that room. And we keep that shut. That's the room I keep. That's my work room. I, you know, I, I work over there. I, not, I can't let you have that part of my life. Oh, that's, that's my marriage over there. We keep that short. I can't let you have that part of my life. No. Open all the doors, Jesus is saying. But I'm, he's not going to bust it down. Listen, he knows everything about your life anyway. I mean, it's not hiding anything from you, so let him have control over it. Maybe you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart about a lukewarm condition you're in. And you realize Jesus is standing at the door at the outside of your life and he wants and he's knocking on your heart today. Maybe you've never had him in your life and all you've been avoiding him. Listen, if you turn away from his knocking, you're going to remain lost. And eventually, if you never repent, you're going to spend eternity lost forever. That's not what Jesus wants. That's not what any of us as believers want. It's the last place the Lord wants you to end up. And that's why he closes, and we close with, with this in verses 21 and 22, as he closed out all the other letters. He says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The, the phrase, to him who overcomes, simply means to him who has truly committed their hearts and lives to, to Jesus Christ. You've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. To him who has received the forgiveness of their sins and have committed their hearts and lived to me, Jesus says, we're going to crawl up into his lap on eternity and spend time with him forever. That's, that's incredible. See, the common thread that runs through all these seven churches, our future, our destiny, our lives are all linked to what we do with Jesus Christ. What we do with Him. Our present relationship with Jesus Christ affects our future destiny. So as we close, may we take the lessons that we've learned from these seven letters to these seven different churches and apply them to our lives personally and to our church practically. Let's go over them quickly and then we'll close. Ephesus, don't forsake your first love. No matter what, remember and repent. Smyrna, when you're under persecution and poverty stricken, be faithful. Don't give up. Pergamos, don't be sexually or spiritually immoral. Don't compromise. Thyatira, don't tolerate false teaching. Avoid apostasy. Sardis, don't be content to have only a reputation. Stay alive. Philadelphia, I want you to have power. I want you to endure. Keep my word. Stay strong. Finally, number seven, Laodicea, Open the doors and allow me to invade your life. Get hot. Let's turn up the heat. Many Christians, they're compromising today. Things that they would never have allowed in their lives when they first came to the Lord, now they're embracing, they're justifying. And if you take your time and you study these seven letters to these seven churches, you'll see that what began with leaving that first love relationship then led to full-scale idolatry and eventually leading to Jesus on the outside of the church knocking to come back in. But it all started with compromise. That's how it started. No one overnight decides they're going to walk away from the Lord. It's a small compromise here, small compromise there. Maybe I'm not going to make it to church this time. I can't make it next time. And Well, i got this going on. And before you know it, Jesus is on the outside knocking to get in. Listen, if after looking at these things this morning, you find yourself in that place of Jesus on the outside, I would pray that you would not leave here without recommitting your life to Jesus Christ today. And if you've never committed your life to Jesus, man, open up your life to Him today. He's knocking, wants to come in. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. We thank You for Your Word. 
We thank you, Lord, for the conviction that your word brings to each one of our lives. I know in each area of our lives, Lord, in each one of our lives, there's an area, Lord, that, that, Lord, we can see that we need, Lord, to turn over to you. We need help in, Lord. We need to get back where we need to be. And Father, I pray right now for each one of us as believers, Lord, if there's some place that we need to open up to you, Lord, that we would do so right now. Would we would surrender afresh and say, Lord, take every area of my life over. We give it to you, Lord. Lord, give us a passion for the lost. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a, 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 an excitement for your return, Lord God. And Lord, I pray also, we pray if there's anyone here that has never given their life to you, Lord, that you've always been on the outside of their life. Lord, it's time for them to open up the door and let you in. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that desires to make that first-time commitment to you, that they would do so this morning. They wouldn't put it off, Lord. Not, not one week, not one hour, not five minutes. They would do it now. While their eyes are closed and their heads are bowed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? Commit your life to Him. You want your sin forgiven? All of your guilt, all of your shame, washed away. You want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If that's your desire to be born again today, to have that hope of heaven with Jesus Christ, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? This is just about you and having that personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your sin forgiven, being born again. Just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Father, thank you that we can be believers here in this place today and we can be encouraged, Lord, that you love us, you're taking care of us, and you want the very best for us. Help us now go in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, impassioned, Lord, uh, excited, on fire, Lord, to serve you even in a greater capacity. We love you so much. We praise you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.